and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Over the last few weeks, I have taken especial pleasure from my regular evening conversations with my mum. Molly is a great linguist. When she retired, she took up Italian in classes at the local university and New Testament Greek. My father was an adamant atheist and it was very difficult to discuss any matter of faith while he was within earshot and that almost certainly included the telephone. But over the last six months since he died my mother and I have discussed almost every sermon I've prepared. She has gone back and read. Now, this may sound fairly simple to you, but my mother has macular degeneration. She has a machine with a big computer screen and a a platform underneath where she can put her book and she can read one or maybe two words at a time usually one. So reading through 13 chapters of Nehemiah is quite an undertaking. But over the last three weeks, that's exactly what she has done. So that in the evening, in our phone call, we can discuss what she's read. Now, my mum had a convent school up but for the last 75 or 80 years has had virtually no contact with the church or with her faith it's back to church Sunday so after 80 years 
I'm discussing with my mum issues of faith. Now I'm sure some of you haven't waited 80 years, but if you have come back today, thank goodness, thank God. Now when I talked with my mum about Nehemiah, she said, what an extraordinary man. And I stopped and thought, because Nehemiah does not paint himself as an extraordinary man. Let's just pick up and see. A quick reminder. Last week, you may recall, Nehemiah received news from Jerusalem. Now where was Nehemiah? He was in Susa, in Persia. And we're reminded there, I was cupbearer to the king. So there he was, in Susa, in Persia, and he received the news. The walls of the city of Jerusalem, which Nehemiah had thought were being rebuilt, were actually in a worse state than before. The wooden gates had been burned away. The city of God had lost its security. Well, its earthly security anyway. It wasn't a safe place to do business. It wasn't a safe place to live. So Nehemiah sat down and wept. Today, we read his prayer, how he poured out his heart to God. And we learn quite a bit about Nehemiah from reading this prayer. You may have noticed, he starts with recognising God for who he is. Praise. He moves on to pray for the nation of Israel. He confesses the sins of the nation as though they were his own. He identifies. And he recognises that with the privileges of belonging to God's chosen people, there come responsibilities. And he takes his responsibility individually and he takes it communally. This is something we're all in together. And what are the responsibilities? To, to follow God. And he recognises that the nation had not followed God. So he prayed for the nation. And only after that does he bring his own request. Grant me favour in the presence of the king. And then that strange last line at the end of the prayer. It's not part of the prayer. Perhaps really ought to be at the beginning of the next chapter. I was cupbearer to the king. Penny tells me that the British Museum has some wonderful cups. Persian cups from just this period. Cups that Nehemiah might have held in his hand. The cupbearer was to drink the wine and taste the food that the king was going to eat to make sure it wasn't poisoned. But as I was preparing, I came across a little 
piece of information from Herodotus. Now, for those of you who don't know, Herodotus was a Greek historian. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah, so about the same sort of time. And he writes that the office of cupbearer was one of particular honour amongst the Persians. And he makes reference to other sources which indicate that maybe the office of cupbearer was one that shared with the chief minister to the king. So maybe Nehemiah was not a flunky. Maybe he was King Artaxerxes' right-hand man. What better way to make sure you're safe than to make sure your right-hand man drinks your wine and eats your food before you do? So Nehemiah may well not have been an ordinary man in that sense. You would think that would place him as a man of some considerable ability. But Nehemiah doesn't tell us this, you know. As we read through the book, and it's told in the first person, so it's kind of autobiographical, as we read through, he doesn't give us very much indication of this. Later on, and I hope I'm not stealing other preachers' thunder here, we'll hear how Nehemiah left Susa and travelled to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. He would have had a comfortable life as the king's right-hand man. And he went to the ruins of Jerusalem. Imagine giving up the comforts of middle class, middle Sussex, and going to work on a building project in Syria. That's what Nehemiah took on. He says very matter-of-factly that he went to Jerusalem. But actually, it was a great deal more than that. Later, we will also hear how the walls were rebuilt. Each family along the wall and each business and the priests and Levites took responsibility for their own little stretch of the wall. Now I had a look at the map and I reckon the walls around Jerusalem are round about three kilometres long. So Nehemiah got enough families and businesses involved to rebuild all of that, each their own little bit. He just gives us a list of who did what. But what must he have done? He must have walked to the walls. He must have befriended every family along the way. He must have visited every business. He got them on board with the vision God had given him of the walls being rebuilt. He made friends. I'm sure he will have prayed with them. And that community rebuilt those walls. Now you get some idea of what's going on here. Nehemiah says, this family did that bit, that family bit. He says nothing 
about what Nehemiah did. He's modest. He's spiritual. He built, or rather God built, through him, a community that took on that task of rebuilding. Nehemiah thought he was rebuilding the walls. God was rebuilding the community. They took on that task unflinchingly. There was a lot of opposition. There were threats. But they stuck together. Not only did Nehemiah get them all on board, but he was doing all the organising. He organised the supplies. He organised protection when they needed it. He kept them going. He helped them to see God in what they were doing. So you see, he must have had a great deal more skill than he let on. Organisation, relationships, he did them all wonderfully well. But we have to tease out that information. And I might just ask you, as we go on in the next few weeks through Nehemiah, just to stop occasionally and think, what did he have to do to make that happen? When he said he arranged armed guards, stop and think. He wasn't the king. Didn't snap his fingers and say, here, you two, go and get me a squadron of armed guards. He had to find the men. He had to find the weapons. He had to organise the times. I expect he even did the rotors. The relationship, the organisation... You have to look for it, unpick it. But there he was, that modest, spiritual man. So, we read through the story. What do we learn? What is it that holds a community together? In this case, it might look like it was Nehemiah, but actually, I don't think that's where we're at. This remarkable story, this community forged in a difficult place, a community with a common purpose, with their eye on God, community recognising a shared faith, a community that wept when Ezra the priest read the law. The law, although it sounds like a set of rules, is the nation's history. Israel's history we can read through and hear the story of the rescue from Egypt of the march through the desert of discovering the promised land and entering and taking the promised land that is the law so here they were hearing many of them perhaps for the first time their history That history had probably been abandoned during the exile by many of them. In fact, they were so far away from it that Ezra read in Hebrew and the scribes and Pharisees, the Levites, had to translate into Aramaic so that the people could understand. And having translated, 
they had to gently explain. And suddenly, these people belonged. They had found in their history that they were the people of God. And with that recognition came the understanding of how far they had strayed away from him. But the privilege, the belonging, outweighed the hardship. It drew them together when it might have split them apart. What was the privilege? I think it was a unique relationship with God. A God who never forgot them, who remained faithful to his promises to them, even when they strayed. Doesn't that resonate? It should. Isn't that sort of community just what, what the one we're in? Following Christ is about community. Like the nation, we each have a unique relationship with Christ. Christ meets each one of us individually. So just as Nehemiah walked the walls and visited each family, bringing news of God to them, so the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us individually, bringing Christ. Christ draws us in. He gets us on board. And how does he draw us in? Nehemiah went from the luxury of Susa to the ruins of Jerusalem. Jesus came from the luxury of heaven to the ruins of the land of the shadow of death. He lived on earth like us. Like us, he died on earth. Death took him, just as it takes every one of us. But why is that special? What does that do for us? It provides us the same privilege that Nehemiah's nation shared. A privilege of a unique relationship with God. Like the Israelites we find our identity in that privilege. They heard their history and wept. We perhaps take Christ and embrace him and should weep. They found that relationship in God the Father. We find it in God the Son. We have a shared heritage. But our second reading takes us on to perhaps another area, one which was common, which must have been in the Jerusalem community of Nehemiah. We have relationships with each other as well as with Christ. That takes up a very big slice of Paul's writing if we find others difficult we might choose the life of a hermit makes it a lot easier we don't have to deal with all these people just me and God 
But it's a tough life. Very few people can sustain that. Other people really are a two-sided coin, aren't they? And while we might struggle with some, remember the people you might think twice about sitting next to in church. Do you remember that? We've all got them. Don't pretend you haven't. But the other side of the coin is that those people, the ones who are different from you, are the ones that you desperately need. They are the support. They are, if you like, the other side of your coin. Where you are weak, they are strong. So we don't get bowed down by opposition because we are buoyed up by a group of people who complement us. They fill in the gaps that we have where I might struggle with one area of spiritual life, I see others who sail on serenely through that area as though they were made for it, which of course they were. That is what this community is about. We each fill in the missing bits of the other. We are a community. A community of different gifts and talents, of different personalities, of different spiritualities. But that is our strength. And what holds us together is what we keep our eye on. Carl said, the main thing is to keep the main thing. The main thing. Keep your eye on Christ. There is your privilege, there is your identity. There is what holds us together. And there we have a foundation amongst the ruins. A foundation we can build upon. I don't think, at least I hope, we're not going to be building walls. Walls divide. I'd like to think perhaps there are two other things we are going to build. We are going to build ourselves a life, an abundant life, with our identity in Christ. And we're going to build bridges, not walls. <laughs>